0: Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast on emerging doctrine and the Army's vision of warfare. Hello. Hello. I'm Captain Stephen McCreary, and welcome to another episode of Breaking Doctrine. With the newest version of FM390, Tactics, publishing this month, we've produced several episodes of Breaking Doctrine to highlight changes to the Army's tactical language. On today's episode, we will be discussing one of the most challenging maneuver operations, the passage of lines. Chapter 16 of the new FM390 describes the passage of lines in detail. Joining me today is Colonel Retired Gregory Fontenot former director of the United States Army School of Advanced Military Studies, or SAMS, commander of the Battle Command Training Program, director of TRADOC's Wargaming Directorate and the Army's Red Teaming School at the University of Foreign Military Studies. He commanded 234 armor in 1st ID under 7th Corps and led them in combat during operations Desert Storm and Desert Shield and commanded 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division, the Ready 1st Brigade Combat Team in Bosnia. He is currently a consultant on threat emulation and leadership and has authored at least four books. Isn't that right, Greg?
1: It is. Uh, four books exactly and uh, a chapter in anthology and multiple articles. I am pleased to report that uh, I actually knew Dick Cavassos and I'm really delighted they named a, they named a, uh, Fort Hood uh, for him and got rid of the name of a fairly uh, uninspiring Confederate general.
0: We're also joined by Colonel-retired Mr. Rich Creed, the Director of the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, or CAD, here at Fortress Leavenworth. But before we're coming to CAD, sir, you've been everything from a tank platoon leader in Germany to an armor company team commander in Bosnia, and from an armor battalion S-3 in Iraq to the senior advisor to the Afghan chief of the, of the general staff. And, sir, rumor has it that you had some formative experiences working for Greg here. Is that, is that true? That is very true, and we could, we could spend a whole podcast
2: uh, about my interaction with the Ready First Combat Team commander in 1996 and 1997, but we're not going to do that today. We'll save that for a
0: future engagement. Sir, as is tradition, we'll start the show off with Army doctrine. Mr. Creed, I'll defer to you. How would you describe enabling operations?
2: Okay, so we talk about enabling operations usually to set context uh, for the other types. And so what Doctrine says is enabling operation, uh, enabling operations are operations that connect, or connect offensive, defensive, or stability operations together. So on their own, they're not necessarily decisive, but they help set conditions for the execution of other types of operations. So it's the things you do to, to set yourself up to be able to do the things uh, that you're trying to achieve is, is a way of thinking about it. Um, They're complex enough or complicated enough on their own that they require a specific deliberate planning effort uh, or at least a well-developed and understood uh, standard operating procedures. Uh, But that's going to be at lower tactile echelons like say battalions and companies. You really need a a planning effort and an order for echelons above battalions. Um, Some examples of enabling operations, uh, reconnaissance, uh, security operations, uh, troop movements, particularly large unit movements. Uh, Reliefs in place, uh, counter-mobility, mobility, mobility, tactical deception, link-up operations, and then what we'll talk about today, which is uh, passages of lines.
0: Sir, with that, uh, now that we've described roughly what enabling operations are, what exactly is a passage of lines?
2: All right, so what FM 390 uh, and ADP 390 uh, talks about in terms of a definition a passage of lines is an operation in which a force moves forward or rearward through another force's combat positions with the intention of moving into or out of contact with the enemy. And so that's out of Joint Pub 318. In layman's terms, that means a stationary force establishes some type of physical lanes
0: so that another moving force uh, can pass through their position. Thank you, sir. Um, more specifically, what makes a forward passage of lines different from, say, a rearward passage of lines?
2: Okay, so the difference is, is kind of in the title, but the context is, is important. So a forward passage of lines occurs when a unit passes through another unit's positions while moving towards the enemy. Right, so you're essentially setting conditions uh, for a movement to contact in some way, shape, or form for the, the lower tactical echelons of that overall formation. In layman's terms, uh, the stationary force uh, passes or moves through uh, friendly force lines towards enemy forces, typically to conduct an attack or offensive operation. When you talk about a rearward passage, it's uh, exactly what it sounds like. Uh, You're passing through another unit's uh, positions while moving away from the enemy. In other words, you're trying to break contact. Um, in layman's terms, the stationary force passes the moving force through their lines away from enemy forces. So, in the old days, you would, you know, at the battalion level, you would talk about the screen line, and the cavalry scouts would fall back through as part of uh, a deliberate defense, for example. Um, and ideally, in both cases, the passing unit's operations don't interfere with the stationary unit. Um, Sometimes it's useful to go back and look at, at old doctrines of so the 100-5 from 1986, which is a pretty uh, well-written document. I believe some people around here had some influence on that. Uh, Craig Fontenot uh, certainly was someone that taught me about it. But it talked about uh, attack and exploitation often begin with a forward passage of lines. And you do that because a unit is probably close to culmination if it's been conducting an attack. And what you want is a fresh unit that um, you know has its uh, fuel tanks topped off uh, full loads of ammunition uh, and so forth uh, to move forward and then continue that momentum so it's about keeping the momentum it's the 100s5 said that such a passage must be well planned and coordinated to ensure minimum congestion and confusion right congestion and confusion are, are, are not supportive of momentum Uh, And then when possible, the passage should be through elements that are not in contact. So you're looking for a quiet place. You're not looking for where the battle is raging, if you have a a choice, right? So you want some place that gives you a little bit of standoff in
0: terms of immediate direct fire contact in particular. Now that we're firmly grounded in doctrine, Greg, uh, I'd like you to take me back to February 1991, uh, Operation Desert Storm. You were in command of 234 on the extreme western flank of 1st Infantry Division. Uh, Is that correct?
1: That is correct. That was the westernmost task force, balanced task force, two tank, two mech.
0: Okay. Um, Can you describe the 7th Corps area of operations and how 1st Infantry as a whole fit into that?
1: I can. So if you think about what happened in uh, Kuwait, when the Iraqis uh, took Kuwait, they began to build defensive positions from the Persian Gulf heading west. As they went west, they would refuse the flank, so they would build fortifications, uh, trenches and so forth, oriented west, and then they would bound forward again. Well, by the time they got out to the Wadi Batin, they were thinning on the ground. It was December of uh, 1990 by the time they got out there. We arrived in the desert in January, uh, middle of January, 1991. The mission of the Seventh Corps was to penetrate the Iraqi flot, the Iraqi uh, frontline positions. And these, bear in mind, these are prepared positions. But again, farther to the east, they had more mines and wire and all that. As they went west, and their supplies got lower and lower. Uh, it thinned out a little bit. So we were not in a position of attacking as deep a, a, a fortified position as the Marine Corps did, for example. But at the western end uh, of the Iraqi line was the Iraqi 7th Corps, curiously enough, opposed by U.S. 7th Corps. U.S. 7th Corps uh, consisted of the 2nd Cavalry Regiment, the 1st AD, the 3rd AD, the 1st Infantry Division, the 1st Cavalry Division eventually joined us. They were Theater Reserve, but they joined us. And the 1st Armored Division of the United Kingdom Army. So big outfit, 148,000 troops, bigger than the Army of the Potomac. The main effort uh, for Central Command, uh, and that's a big main effort because Central Command was an Army group. 3rd U.S. Army had 18th Corps and 7th Corps, and then you had uh, Task Force East, Task Force, West, I think it was. They were called joint forces, two Arab uh, Corps-sized formations and the Marine Corps MEF. So this was an Army group operation. The purpose of 7th Corps, task and purpose, if you will, was penetrate, once penetrated, exploit, and then, uh, given the opportunity, pursue the enemy to clear uh, the enemy from Kuwait and to cut off the main force of the enemy that was in Kuwait. So it wasn't just destroy the Republican Guard Forces Command. The plan had envisaged uh, stopping the Iraqi army from getting out, in other words, preventing it from escaping. In the end, it wasn't able to do that. 1st Infantry Division's mission was to penetrate, uh, use it by, by means of a penetration attack, uh, penetrate the Iraqi 7th Corps, conduct a forward passage to the 1st Armored Division, the UK Army, who would then turn east to roll up the flank of the Iraqi army as it headed east. And it would head east until the Iraqi 7th Corps was, was out of the fight. And that would take it into Kuwait. So uh, I want to come back and, and mention something that Rich Cree just said. The, an enabling operation is, a, is a, a equivalent to a task in my mind. It's not a mission. You're doing this for some other purpose. Our purpose was to, to get the 1st ADUK in position to do the job it had, which was to exploit the penetration. And then we were going to be either in core reserve or committed on any uh, number of contingencies. And that's the other thing. This was a deliberate attack, and a deliberate attack in old speak, old 390, since I haven't seen the new 390 yet. The thing that you're trying to do is to create the conditions to go on. So we had planned in depth. It was deliberate because we had A, time, and B, intelligence. In the old days, we said a deliberate attack was characterized either by time or intelligence, so we had both. We got into the desert in uh, the middle of January. My outfit didn't fire a shot till the 17th of February, but the 1st Division fired its first shots in, uh, on the 28th, uh, 29th of January. So the notion of the 86-hour war is bogus. It was not an 86-hour war. To, do, to, to get that done uh, meant that we had to plan beyond the enabling operation, and I'll, I'll let it go there. I think that's maybe
0: more than you needed to hear on it. What was the brigade situation before you went over the berm and uh, began the, the myth of the 86-hour ground war, the, the last portion?
1: So the, the division mission you've heard about, the division commander, General Tom Rehm, had three brigades, 1st and 2nd Brigade of the 1st Empty Division, and the 3rd Brigade of the 2nd Armored Division, which was based in Garlstadt, Germany, forward based uh, from the 2nd Armored Division. The division was required uh, to penetrate, and to do so, it put together four assault task forces that were organized, two tank, two MAC. Each of the two brigades had a, a, a tank battalion that was pure that would exploit the immediate penetration of the assault task forces. The Assault Task Forces each were responsible for four lanes, so there were 16 formal lanes that were going to be deliberately established. By the way, the lanes were marked beginning at 3,000 meters with uh, large plywood signs painted bright red with a large stencil that said A, B, C, D, all the way out till you got 16. Good news is, is the English, even the Brits can read American English, so uh, A, B. A through whatever was adequate. And so that, that was the first mission that we were to do, was get the enemy forced out of indirect fire of the lanes and establish the lanes. The other piece of that was we were not authorized to move anything through those lanes to support ourselves. So you, made the, you got the lanes established, then you would make lanes for your own assets to move. But none of our stuff, no soft skin vehicles, no fuel trucks, no nothing, we were prepared to sustain ourselves for up to three days if it, if it took that. My concern also was the Seventh Iraqi Corps had refused the flank, and so they had a battalion oriented to the west, and I wanted uh, part of my responsibility was to get that battalion. So I had six infantry companies dug in that I was to account for, and that was the uh, situation. We attacked at 5:30 in the morning uh, on the 24th and had to go through about 20 kilometers of, of what would have been their security zone to get into position for the, for the assault.
0: So we've crossed line departure on the 24th. Let's go to 25 February 1991. What's the situation for you and 234 Armor?
1: The first thing we had at, 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 at stand two, when we could finally see something first thing in the morning, it had been a fairly quiet night, but they had very little response. Right after Stand 2, we had a whole bunch of excitement because it turned out we were in a, uh, a couple of the companies were in the uh, DPICM and Air Force Bomblet uh, had, had, were all over the place. So we had to get those companies out of there. But mission number one, or rather enabling operation number one, was to support the forward passage of 5th Battalion, 16th Infantry, who were, gonna, who were east of us or immediate on our immediate right flank. They were going to pass behind us, and then passed through us on our left, uh, almost on our left flank to Caesar Ridge just to the north of us. And so we managed that early in the morning, 5th and 16th went through and attacked up the flank of the uh, infantry battalion that was up on the ridge above us. And that was executed uh, pretty early in the morning, probably by mid morning. And then uh, shortly thereafter, the 1st Armored Division, UK Army began passing through, took all that day and until about three o'clock the next morning for them to get through. And the reason it took so long is even though that's a two brigade division, they had to move all of their artillery, all of their division support and some of their national support so they could be sustained as they went to the east. So that took uh, a lot longer than Norm Schwartzkopf thought it ought to take. And the reason we, it took that long was because you're, you're moving even on 16 lanes when you think about six maneuver battalions, uh, three manu- uh, artillery battalions, and all the logistic support of the 1st uh, the ADUK, they had something on the order of 3,000 vehicles and 30,000 people. It's a big operation.
2: So that's funny that because we haven't done big unit movements, bigger than brigades, except in very rare instances, probably for since 2003, they put a model together over at CGSC that shows the 1st Infantry Division strung out on Highway 70, uh, and the division movement, and I think they have the array as a movement to contact, and uh, maybe it's a deliberate attack. It's about 120 miles long in terms of uh, it takes up all of Highway 70 from Fort Riley all the way to Kansas City.
1: Yeah, uh, it, moving large formations is not as easy as it sounds. And it, years ago now, Don Holder and his plans officer wrote a thing about how to move a division. And movement is so difficult that even in the 19th century, Clausewitz writes about how to measure the pastime of a column. The immutable fact of life is stuff takes time to move. And it's easy to figure out. So, how long is an M1 tank? What is the interval between M1 tanks? Pretty quickly, you got five or six kilometers of stuff with just a battalion. Uh, Yeah, it's it's not easy. And and I'll tell you, the other thing is deserts look pretty big until you stuff a core of 148,000 in it. We had almost no room the next day for us to move. So on the 25th when we are the 26th when we started moving north, we had to move in a division column of battalions because there was no room for us to move. And when you get into a division, column, of battalions, you get to the point you made. We started moving at 5:30 in the morning, and the last maneuver battalion to move didn't move till two o'clock in the afternoon. So this, the, the physics of movement—it uh, sounds. You know, we see blue arrows on a map. It looks pretty easy. When you're in the blue arrow, it doesn't look so easy.
2: Well, that's assuming no fog and friction in terms of people making a wrong turn. It, it's dusty, cloudy, it's dark. Drivers fall asleep. People have accidents. Stuff breaks down,
1: and it's not raining or snowing, and you know everything is perfect, and none of those things happen. And friction. Uh, you know, we used to just say in the first brigade. Remember, we didn't know uh, exactly how, and this may have to be edited out exactly how uh, you translated a uh, passiert, uh, or the escape weiter, which shit happens, which is friction. Yeah. Well, I mean, or stuff happens if you prefer.
2: Well. And I think most people would be okay with the uh, the German translation, <laughs> but I mean, the uh, something that doesn't come out in simulation. No. When you when you're pucking icons, uh, and you're just telling them where to go, they're going to go where you tell them to go. They can pretty much do anything and, and go, and, and that friction is not, uh, isn't captured. The human dimension of those types of things, and, and all the things that Murphy's law, right, that doesn't get captured in there. Uh, nor is it, is it quite as unforgiving when you think about, well, there was a delay, so now I've been idling for this number of hours and I didn't move when I thought, and now I'm out of gas. Or I'm going to be out of gas at a really bad time on uh, on the other end uh, of this passage of line.
1: And you have to practice this. We used to, uh, at, at, in the old First Division of those days, we were a reforger unit, so we would every year there would be a, track vehicle convoy route on Interstate 70 and there would be a separate wheel convoy route so you didn't tie up Interstate 70 you know, both ways for two days so that we could practice that because when you got to Germany you are going to be doing it through medieval towns and or the uh, the Audubon and you had to know what you were doing in order to do that So, and that applies whether you're in desert, the Arctic or jungle moving's not going to be easy and the constraints of terrain matter
0: Absolutely. Um, Greg, clarification for me. So you knew that you were going to be passing 516 Infantry during the first day or so of the operation, correct? It was predetermined that you had a number of lanes to establish.
1: Yes. And, and oh, by the way, we passed 134 before the, the afternoon of the, of the attack. They passed through us because remember we had to push the enemy farther out. So I did, that was the past unit. On the first day, and early the second day, and then a third time on the second day, a third time during the operation when the first ADUK UK came through. So there are multiple passages aligned line to sustain the attack,
0: to keep momentum, to
1: keep the momentum. Yeah.
0: So with that, when you passed five sixteen onto, I believe it was uh, objective fifteen kilo, was that a known objective to begin with, or was yes. that you had made contact yes. and identified? Okay.
1: We built objectives, we, meaning the brigade and the division, built objectives uh, 30 plus kilometers deep. And then our contingencies, uh, which were uh, contingency operations plan Jeremiah 1, 2, and 3, would take us any number of directions. And I think the one we actually executed was 3, which took us all the way north, and then we turned east uh, at, at phase line smash. That we did manage with objectives. That we managed with uh, waypoints, GPS waypoints, essentially.
0: Okay. Um, with that, Mr. Creed, sir, are there any other methods for planning or initiating an F-Pole or passage of lines in general? You know, we've got um, mm-hmm. initiating by an event or initiating by you know contact with the enemy. Um, is there any are there any other reasons that come to mind? Well, I mean, there always. I, I,
2: I always think of Passage lines as conditions-based. I mean, there's some condition. There's a reason why you're doing that. Um, and because so many things can go wrong and that's not changed. In fact, it, I think with the way the world works now with the, uh, uh, tra- we call it the transparent battlefield, uh, but it's harder to hide um, or deceive. Um, so I think it's not so much that the methods for planning would be different so much as what we have to plan. Uh, We have to plan a little bit differently for different conditions. Um, And those conditions, again, change. I I think you have to anticipate things like culmination, right, to maintain momentum, but you don't always necessarily anticipate when that's gonna happen. Um, So there's got to be this ability, as Greg talked about, that initial plan's gotta have enough detail that you can call an audible, uh, issue a FRAGO, and it's probably gonna be VOCO, right? we're going left instead of right, or this task force is now the main effort uh, as opposed to the other, so now the following support or follow following SUMA mission is gonna be on a different axis, perhaps, right? Which may introduce its own level of complexity if you're uh, driving through somebody else's area. Um, I think, though, um, when you look at Desert Storm, uh, First ID and uh, 234 in particular, what I think about is what would be different today if we had to do that and you're fighting somebody that's got satellite observation um, th- that has uh, UASs uh, that can pick up your electromagnetic s- signature uh, pretty clearly. Uh, and so how would you want to conduct something like that? People like to say, well, we would never have that kind of massing. Well, I don't think that's necessarily true. There's been plenty of mass over the last 18 months or so. Uh, in evidence in in Ukraine, right? Um, Because mass still matters. Uh, But what do you do to mitigate risk? I mean, I think there are some things. So from a doctrinal standpoint, we used to talk about co-locating command posts. And maybe Greg can talk about how the different echelons were at least had contact teams or something that there were people standing next to each other on different radio nets talking. We would have, we would incur significant risk uh, putting say a division tag uh, a brigade CP or a brigade TAC, and then all these passing units all in the same spot, right? Even if they couldn't target you with lethal munitions, they could jam everybody at one time. That would probably be a bad idea. So we looked in our doctrine to get away from saying, you're always going to do that. You need to take the conditions into account. To me, that's what would be different. Um, so this isn't a playbook. This is a historic example of doing something at scale. Uh, and you've got somebody that can talk about it from the core level all the way down to the company team. Um, but what I would ask the listeners to do is, th- how would you think about doing this when you got a persistent UAS thread, you've got satellite observation? Um, you're still gonna want to do it in the dark because eyeballs and visual stuff uh, is important. Uh, and then how do you practice it? When, when do you practice it? Because this was something that we used to drill all the time. Every time you did a table 12 at tank gunnery, it was a forward passage of lines, rearward passage of lines, and it was something that was drilled into your head as lieutenants, platoon sergeants, even vehicle commanders. I don't know what Greg's thoughts.
1: Well, uh, first and foremost, things are far different now. We we were fighting the D-team and maybe the second string of the D-team. These were not well-led troops. Uh, They had not been well-supported. We could operate with impunity because the United States enjoyed air supremacy. They were unable to see what we were doing. Uh, So you could get away with some things that I don't think you could get away with now if you were fighting a near peer competitor. That, so first and foremost, you're absolutely right. You know, there, it's a transparent battlefield, and it's liable to be a quiet battlefield too because if you emanate or radiate, you're going to get eliminated if you're if you if you're fighting somebody that's you know that has their stuff together. We were fortunate in that we did not. However, there are principles that can be applied uh, in any case. Mitigation includes things like uh, signature reduction, which means communicating no more than necessary. Uh, we communicated uh, with uh, pyrotechnics. We communicated by constant rehearsal, by having signs three kilometers out. Even the Brits can figure that out, right? And then then every kilometer until you got to a 1,000 uh, meters, and then it was even more frequent. Uh, so we had and the, and, and the British appreciated that. They were professionals. We rehearsed with them because this was deliberate. So that rehearsal allows you to mitigate things. Uh, if something goes wrong and you've rehearsed it, you've also rehearsed contingencies. If you're doing discovery learning in a rehearsal, uh, that's not desirable, but that's a better time to learn it than in an execution. Uh, you have to do it in training and we did too. You know, we had uh, uh, three core in, in the States mandated friendly targets as part of the target array and then when you did table 12 we actually did something we called platoon kills battalion where you were fighting a tank platoon would fight a motor rifle battalion advancing at it in the in doctrinal uh, speed led by bradley's doing a a a, a rearward passage lines cut representing the covering force did that at the ntc also the first thing you saw at the ntc would be a rearward passage lines with friendly a friendly target array coming in. So you, you mitigate by training, but you mitigate also by, by discrete practices, signature reduction, and the rest of obscuration. We pumped smoke uh, when we did, we put in, I put in a blanket because the wind supported, um, the wind blew from the southeast, so we could put in a smoke blanket for our attack. Uh, We didn't blanket the ground when the Brits came through because we pushed the enemy far enough back. We didn't need to do that. It is going to be a lot more difficult, but I think some of the same principles will apply, and those are rehearsal and doctrine and uh, passive and active uh, mitigation.
2: I think the other—and it's a reminder, right, because culturally uh, our higher echelons above brigade haven't played a day-to-day role in the conduct of operations in in real-world things for a while, right? And so— um there's got to be a certain level of trust that your hire is doing the condition setting for that. So the Corps had a responsibility for setting conditions, right? The the, the General Schwarzkopf staff, the joint staff at the uh, Land Component Command and above levels, right, they were all setting conditions. The Corps is doing stuff for the divisions. The divisions are doing stuff for the brigades. The brigades are doing stuff for the – so it's 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 all part and parcel. You can't say that a passage of lines – in this case, you can't you could. But I mean, it's not a company mission. It's not a or task, right? You said task. I think that's an accurate way of putting it. Within the context of a larger operation, it's a series of tasks. Um, But the battalion passage lines is not a battalion operation. It's the brigade operation. It's part of the division operation. And and that integration is something that I think Reforger and other exercises allow people to practice, right?
1: The confidence that people had in the of the Corps' ability to execute doctrine was high. I knew Don Holder. When I was a student at Sam's, he was in a war, he was a war College Fellowship. When he went to PCC to take 2nd Cavalry Regiment, I drove him from the airport because I was going to the same PCC. And believe it or not, a battalion commander from Fort Riley had a rental car, but squatted. regimental commander 2nd Cav <laughs> did not. So I, I knew him. Uh, Tom Rame had been the, the G3 and Chief of Staff at, at 3rd Armor Division. Uh, the guy who was the Executive Officer of 1st Brigade, He Commanded Headquarters Company of 3rd Armor Division when Rayme was there. It, it, and all those connections that you made at the Staff College, uh, serving together, all of that had imbued, uh, and Reforger had imbued, a sense of doctrinal understanding and confidence in the doctrine and the Army had gone through what I believe is safe to describe as a renaissance after, uh, after the war in Vietnam, in which uh, was led by junior officers from World War II, uh, relatively junior officers. Wes Moreland had been a battalion commander. He really is the guy that kicked that off as Chief of Staff of the Army. Some people will find it hard to believe, but it's true. Uh, Bill Depew, who had been a lieutenant and uh, company commander and so forth in in World War II, was a big part of that. Uh, Paul Gorman, who had enlisted sailor at the end of World War II, was a major part of that. And the the younger officers who were junior officers in Vietnam were the the guys that taught us that were lieutenants after Vietnam how to fight. Burt Maggart, my brigade commander, was, was a veteran of Vietnam, as was Tony Marino in the Second Brigade, uh, and Maggart and Sullivan had served together in First Brigade. Marino and Rame had served together in Third Armored Division. C had a great. We had a great deal of confidence in each other. And among the Armor Battalions, the only guy that had not served in the 37th Armor in Germany at some point was me. Uh, the other three Armor Battalion commanders had all served in, in First AD together. Uh, I was a First ID, Third AD. Uh, guy, not a 1st AD guy. So I I was the only one. And I'd gone to the career course with him. Every officer in the battalion command position in 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division, which was 2 Tank, 1 Mech, had gone to the FG Officers Advanced Course. So shared experiences, shared doctrine, understanding National Training Center led to a level, and Reforger, led to a level of confidence in the doctrine and each other that I think we need. we will recapture in this Army, the junior officers in this room, Will we'll make that happen, I believe.
0: Wow, well, that's, uh, that's a big expectation, Greg. I appreciate that. It's faith. your army now. <laughs> you
1: have to take care of it. It's a smaller army, so it should be easy. It should be a <laughs> lot easier. It wasn't as hard are. as back in the bad old days. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe you said that.
0: Yeah, I know. <clears throat> you well, know, with, with that being said, that, that reminds me of two questions. Um, you know, when you were conducting these pasture lines, did you use liaisons at, at, you know, the battalion level? I mean, did you do a ramp-to-ramp or a face-to-face with any of the passing forces or when you were passing later on, did you, you know, meet up at a coordination or a contact point to talk about the conduct of the passage?
1: Yes, we did all of those things. Uh, the brigade had a liaison officer from 1st AD UK who stayed, who joined us before the passage alliance quite a few uh couple of weeks before and was with uh, the brigade throughout that and that similarly that happened in second brigade the uh, division talk uh, managed the passage division talk I meant to say division tack uh, Brigadier General Bill Carter and frankly we organized we meaning the division uh, organized this as a river crossing operation we used the same we even called it bridgehead, I think called it a breachhead line instead of a bridgehead line. We organized it as if you were crossing a river, near side, far side, and all of that. And the tactical command post, uh, you know, jump command post, the 1st Army Division UK Army, co-located with the division tax. So Bill Carter had the uh, assistant division commander of the 1st AD UK with him. Uh, that uh, And we had practiced that. We rehearsed that at scale. At, at, you know everybody was there for a rehearsal, believe it or not, uh, big big deal. Uh, so that had been practiced and the and NATO uh, the standard NATO agreements or staNAGs on how to do forward passages of lines meant that army doctrine was consistent with NATO uh, standard NATO agreements. So we, we knew how to do this and so did the Brits. Uh, even though they're organized differently than us, uh, we had a common, Uh, picture of how to do it and in the case of the British all of that came to pass in the case of 5th 16th and and 134 passing through my lanes or my unit we had practiced that numerous times had done it at the National Training Center so that was that was almost SOP you know you didn't have to write detailed instructions to do that and 134 which passed on the on the the attack itself the first day you know they knew they were going to go through whatever lanes were open first and they began their forward passage seven minutes after the first lane was open. I remember that distinctly. And uh, that all happened very quickly. When we went through 2nd Cavalry Regiment, uh, that was passing through a unit in contact, which is, uh, you know to paraphrase the Wizard of Oz, a horse of a, of a different color. That was uh, far less well planned because never, we hadn't planned on doing it. We, we didn't know that we would have to do it. That happened as a consequence of the things I mentioned before, common, uh, common doctrine, understanding each other, confidence in each other, uh, respect for the professionalism of other units that you didn't work with routinely. And in the case of 2nd Cavalry Regiment, we actually found the, the passage point uh, with a green star cluster. You know that, That's how you got there. And one of the things you want to remember is in those days, GPS, the 2nd Cav was using LORAN. Uh, and, and Loran depended on the Iraqis not taking down their, their transmitters, and they didn't because they needed them too. We used Magellan um, GPS, which never it never got you where you were supposed to go, and we could never quite figure that out until we found out after the war that and I I didn't use it because I didn't trust it because it never got me where I was supposed to go. Well there was an offset that was being put into the Magellan so that you would not get targetable data. So generally you are circular error probable of three hundred meters or more with Magellan. So we said, what well, this doesn't seem right. This we should be over there. Well it was because Magellan had inputted errors. And 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 the reason I mentioned that is you couldn't find the passage point in the dark unless somebody shot a star cluster, which is what 2nd Gallery did.
0: Well, yeah, that, that leads me to another question. Um, were there any issues executing a passage alliance with a unit that was outside of your division, like 1st UK or 2ACR? Um, did everybody know the doctrine? sounds like yes.
1: Yes, everybody did know the doctrine.
0: Was there any confusion that may have been caused by a difference in unit SOPs?
1: No, there was not. Uh, how many rehearsals did you do? With 2nd Gallery? None.
2: Yeah, but how about with?
1: We did m- multiple rehearsals with 1st AD UK, but, but only one. There was a mounted rehearsal where 1st AD UK passed through every, everything, but we only had uh, you know, one or two vehicles to represent our, our positions. The 1st ADUK was in the back. 1st Infantry Division was up on the flot, so you know, on, the, on the border berm, so we couldn't bring all the division back there. But there were multiple rehearsals done uh, around a map board and then a live rehearsal.
0: So, Greg, you mentioned uh, GPS error. Uh, what, what were the other friction points that you saw during your various passages of lines?
1: Well, the other big one was uh, maps. Uh, we had no maps so the uh, before we went overseas the the assistant or the brigade two uh, had gone and bear in mind maps is not the requirement of a, the two shop it's a quartermaster of course supply requirement but we knew it was going to be tough going getting maps so he had uh, one to 250 maps printed at our task C our, our uh, training aid support so these look like a Xerox copy of a 1-250. Well, in the dark, you know, <laughs> you, you put your thumb, your finger down and you cover up Task Force 234 armor completely. And we had, uh, in a lot of places, we didn't have any maps. So you took a sheet of paper and you put a grid on it. And so you think of a map as a two-dimensional representation of the Earth's surface. In this case, it's a two-dimensional reputation of where you were in relation to somebody else. So if you took a GPS grid, you put it on there, it's ping, I'm there, and you gave me your GPS grid, I had some notion of where you were relative to me. And, and that was good enough. So that the idea that you're going to have assured communications in the 21st century and FBCB2 is going to be working and everything's going to be copacetic and you'll be emailing and chat, you know, no, it ain't going to happen. It's got, something will go wrong, and you better be prepared to be flexible. So flexibility in my case meant, I, I operated by a magnetic lensatic compass and a odometer. I do remember that one thing I was supposed to be able to see uh, when we went uh, passed through the 2nd Cavalry Regiment was a microwave tower, and I never could find it. Well, I realized later when we went back two weeks after the war, the Air Force had brought that thing down in the first couple of nights. So I was looking for a, you know, should have been obvious, but bear in mind, I was a tired dog face by the day three of the war. And if it was on a map, it was supposed to be there. You know, and it wasn't. It's too,
2: and I, I think it's applicable to a passage of lines, but we were talking, there's a big effort right now to modernize our C2 systems and, and so forth. And <laughs> over time, as we've had the ability to do this because of the technology, you can provide pictures right we provide imagery uh, instead of a, a map and you know i'm saying belaboring the obvious here but instead of a map board where you you're seeing things and you're taking spot reports uh one way shape or form whether it's voice or or some other manner in the form of grids we've kind of gotten accustomed to imagery whether it's video or uh, just pictures um well, what we've been talking about is if we have to account for that transparent battlefield, maybe we need to push some of these, our expectations of what people can visualize in their heads back 25 years, maybe a little bit, and teach people to be able to do that. Because your uh, parable there about having a blank sheet of paper and, and having a couple fixed points, but I have a cartoon in my head. I may even have a sketch taped to the, to the hatch, right, like we used to do. This is the course of action sketch so that i know if they're here then i should be over here right i should be to their left i should be slightly behind i should be slightly in front um and i'm not sure there's any way to to teach people how to visualize things in time and space that they can't see but they can only hear about and they got to understand the context of what needs to happen versus what's going on right now that's a very human being kind of thing that i don't think computers can replace and the only way you can get good at that and nobody's great at it but some people you can pick up that skill it is a trainable skill um, is repetition
1: repetition and and uh, I think understanding the underlying uh, principles it's you can you can use a, uh, uh, a calculator you know on a computer but it really helps if you understand how to multiply divide and you you understand why it's working yes if you don't understand why it's working then you know And it doesn't work. Do do you believe it just because it came in on the internet? I wouldn't. Do you believe it uh, just because you saw it on your FBCB2? I would until somebody showed me that they could get in interfere with it, and we know that that's possible. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to you have to do as you say. But I also think you have to think about it from the perspective of being a human. You know the point you made a minute ago. You know, uh, you want to see, you want to have eye contact. That's why we want the images and that's why we want live streaming. Well, if that's not possible, maybe you have to, you know, lean over your JLTV hood or whatever and talk to each other at some point. And I I don't think that's going to go away.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm in agreement. Uh, You know, the joke I used to make as a troop commander myself was you can't jam a paper map. Uh, you know a bit glib but I at least lived and died by the battle board myself uh, because we can jam our command and control systems we can have radio interference but a vehicular runner or a map but
1: you don't want to abandon the technology but you don't want to become so reliant on it you can't do without it as a minimum if we have the data in our computers and a plotter and some paper we can print a map in 1991 to get uh overhead imagery delivered to a tank company you had to have it printed on a paper map and we had overhead imagery that was accurate on the positions of the rgfc and the jihad corps but it had to be delivered on a map and by the time it was palletized and distributed The pallet with 7th Corps stuff got to 7th Corps, and the of 7th MI Brigade broke it out, and then the Quartermaster guys delivered it. Mine got delivered to me in a guy in a Humvee with a driver going through a a tank fight, and that's not really the way you want to do it. Can you imagine old Sergeant Schulte and Specialist John Tabb, who's now Lieutenant Colonel John Tabb, driving through uh, a fight between... Uh, four tank battalions, and three mechanized infantry battalions, and the better part of a division, Jihad Corps Division and RGFC Corps Division, say, man, what an adventure that is. And and oh, by the way, there's B-52 craters out there, and there's uh, J-DAMs, there's bomblets from Air Force bombs, you know, CBUs. It was you know that's why I didn't want any I didn't want any soft-skinned vehicles with me. But old Mike Schulte and John Tab brought that brought that thing forward. Gotta love them.
0: Oof. Well, Greg, while well, I've got you here, um, can you describe your passage through two ACR? You know, was it different being the passing unit rather than the stationary unit?
1: We passed through the Second Cavalry Regiment beginning at 22:30 hours on the 26th of February of 1991. And it would never have come off without the consummate professionalism of Colonel John Holder's regiment, his executive officer, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Robinette, and Cougar 6, Scott Marcy, the late Scott Marcy uh, of 3rd Squadron 2nd Cavalry Regiment. These guys were first-rate bros. Uh, It was really frightening. Uh, First of all, we went into Corps Reserve. And we thought we'd be there for a while because, man, we had, we'd been at it constantly since the 17th of February. And instead, after we'd been pulled in there, we hadn't been there an hour or, or, or more. Had just refueled and all that. And we got this, hey, you move out now to Phase Line Smash. Well, Phase Line Smash was a good hump from us. We had a ways to go. And it was 6 o'clock when we were underway. And we got there literally just in time. The goal, was, you know, the mission, the task was be there at 2230 to do the forward passage. And we literally made it just in time. Uh, my, my talk never got co-located with Marcy's talk until after we had passed through. So we had a, a grid coordinate to go to. And bear in mind, when you put a grid coordinate on a map and say, first brigade, go to that grid coordinate, and you're not advancing in a column, You're advancing two up and one back, essentially. And Skip Baker was so far back because of the crowd. You know, we were moving by division, uh, column of battalions in the division. There's a long way to go and a short time to get there. Uh, We got there literally just in time. I could not go through the designated passage point because the battalion that was leading them, 134, went through an air combat formation. So Combat Diamond, he was spread out. 500, 600 meters. So I was at least that far north. I went through in a column because that's what we had agreed to do. But I went through in two columns, which they had accepted. So you could reduce the, 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 the number of, uh, you increase the length, but you reduce the number of people going through uh, at risk. I passed, a, I drove up alongside of Bradley, yelled at the young man down there, gave him the count of how many vehicles were going through, told him, called the squadron. Meanwhile my, my battalion talk was talking to the squadron, but I never could get a hold of them for some reason. I you know, I don't know what the problem was. But we went through and then as we came through, the, the thing you have to do is transition from column to your to your comp, tactical formation. And I had decided and issued a frag order to the effect that we would go through uh, the two tank companies would be forward. Delta Company, five sixteen infantry would uh, echelon left to give us a bit of a refused flank, and Alpha Company 516 would be in task force reserve and would follow the uh, uh, the lead, the right flank tank company, which was Bravo Company. And I, I, I don't have the time to get into the detail, but we had it arranged so the Bradleys had tanks all the way around and There were no Bradleys that were gonna be exposed since you had, uh, you know, that's where your infantry was. So as we went through, uh, Delta Company 516 following Charlie Company uh, 234 had to turn to the uh, west, I'm sorry, to the north to expand. So now we've, we've come from the south, we've turned east or right in, in our perception. That meant the two left flank companies had to go to the north to get out and spread out. Well, when they did that, they went over an intervisibility line, and I couldn't see them anymore. So I called them and said, hey, where are you? Because they should have reappeared. Well, they were still heading north, and uh, Bob Burns, the company commander, so let me sort this out. His loader got off the tank, got out of compasses, oh, God knows where we are in fact still heading, we are heading north. And so for them to reorient, they either had to turn right or east, and they could see a rocky vehicle, so they didn't want to do that, or they would have to turn in a circle. So then, oh my God, now the <laughs> cab will kill us all. So I've stopped the task force so that these guys could make a circle and call the, had my talk, call the Cav and beg them not to kill us. And the cavalry watched this pirouette, they must think, what are these guys doing? <laughs> well, you remember the Scheisse Eskidweiter? Old Clausewitz said, stuff happens and you gotta find a way to get through it. So now we get them coming around, now we're gonna shoot a star cluster B Company shoots a star cluster to get them oriented on us. And when they did that, the Iraqis shot at the people that shot the star cluster. So Charlie Company calls and says, we need another star cluster. And B Company decides, no, we won't shoot another star cluster. <laughs> so I said, I'll shoot a star cluster. So Sergeant First Class Harley, my, my loader slash platoon sergeant headquarters tanks, miscounted tape. And instead of shooting, you know, we had... You know, one tape is red, two tape is green, three tape is white, or whatever, you know, start, you know, uh, uh, parachute flare. He miscounted the the tapes and he fired a parachute flare. So now, headquarters six six two three four 234 Armors, center field Yankee Stadium at a night game. (laughs) And everybody on the tank is upset. I said to Harley, he's going crazy, he said, Everybody be still. They won't see us if we're still, So, which, of course, is nuts because <laughs> they did see us and they shot at us. And they, uh, they called us for a third star cluster and said, no, you've had all the star clusters you're going to get. You're going to have to find your way home the rest of the way. And they did. It took about 20 minutes to sort that out. Well, why am I telling you this tale? Well, it's semi-entertaining if you weren't there having it happen to you. But it also points out the consummate professionalism of the 2nd Cavalry. Any one of those Bradley commanders or tank commanders could have made a mistake and done what a lot of units did that that night. They shot at things they could see but could not identify. And to this to the, my dying day, I will remain grateful to Scott Marcy and the superb troopers of the second cavalry regiment.
0: Well wow. Other than that piece of friction, were there any other issues during your passenger lines of 2ACR?:
1: No, and I think that was enough.
0: <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, Greg, you know it sounds like 234 was a well-oiled machine during your time in the Gulf. What do you attribute that to?
1: Uh, superb leadership. <laughs> 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 234 armor was, uh, was a really good outfit. But it was, a good, it was a good outfit for a number of reasons. First of all, the, the commanders in that brigade all knew each other and had confidence in each other. Uh, Pat Ritter was the only one that, that was relatively new. Pat took command in the summer of 91. Uh, I had been the executive officer of 134. Then I went to the brigade as the brigade S3. Then I was the brigade executive officer. And then I volunteered to command in Germany, and the Army said, thank you very much for your volunteer effort, but you're going to go right down the street to 234. So I went down the street to 234, where I had been a platoon leader in 1970, or 71, when it had been called 163 Armor. So I, I knew that brigade in and out. Uh, Skip Baker, who commanded 5th Battalion, 16th Infantry, had been the executive officer of 2nd Brigade, so he knew the division. So Baker comes over and joins the team. Bert Maggard had been the chief of staff of the division, moved up the hill to be the brigade commander of 1st Brigade, so we all knew each other. Uh, And as I said, all of us had gone to the infantry officer's advanced course, so we had a common background at the advanced course, and we had all been to CGSC, so we knew the doctrine, we knew each other, and we'd all led troops at the NTC. And when I went as a battalion commander, I had already been as an executive officer in Brigade S3, so I could spell Brigade Operations, and I had practiced it to the point that we got good at it. I am proud to tell you that we stopped the regiment with by ourselves. Uh, the regiment came as a four detachment, and 234 armor uh, uh, nailed them, killed them all. Now, the bad news is I didn't have enough survivors to have a pinochle game, and so I told my guys when we, went, when, when we got the word that we were going to the desert, That by God, we were going to work hard because we were, I did not want to belong to an outfit that didn't want to have reunions. And I would tell you that from the bottom up and top down from division command and from Fred Franks, for that matter, I do not include Norman Schwarzkopf in that group. Uh, We had uh, effective leadership that was not going to abuse you, that was going to do their very best to create conditions for success. And that's why
0: I think it worked. Outstanding. So you conducted combined arms rehearsals, you conducted rehearsals for pasture lines. What else did 234 do before hostilities began to prepare for going across the berm?
1: We did, and uh, uh, we practiced, and, and I'm not going to say rehearsed because we practiced against different objectives uh, multiple times. I had an engineer company, ninth engineers from Germany, and I had them build Iraqi battalion positions for us. And we would change the conditions. First, it would be an anti-tank ditch, and then there would be, you know, firing berms. And then the next time we did it, we would have, you know, a different uh, uh, lay down, But we we do that attack day and night using uh, uh, the ace that we had to fill in trenches. To so say there was. No reason to believe you had to accept the surrender of these guys once you started the attack. You know, if they wanted to surrender, they need to get a white flag up right now. But you start burying a, guys in a trench, and they'll pretty quickly decide they want to give up. And so we practiced that day and night, comms on, comms off. Uh, we had plenty of iterations. We had about six weeks, we estimated. Uh, and Tom Rame and, and, and uh, General Franks did this. The very first time we practiced mine plows and rollers, corps commander was there. Uh, I got there on the, my battalion got there on the morning of the 13th of January, got in the desert, and we had a a mounted rehearsal the next day or mounted practice the next day after we had put the plows on and the rollers on. And he was there because he wanted to know. And we learned from that by experimentation, and then we're doing it in the 2nd Brigade as well, and then we would make copies of what we did, formations that we used and what we thought worked, and exchange them with 2nd Brigade. So we iterated that uh, with the 2nd Brigade as well. So we had a, we had a communication system that allowed uh, learning to occur while you're training and rehearsing to, go to to go to the fight. I'm not sure that fully made sense because I'm looking at eyeballs here. But it seems to me that what we did is we, we, we actively learned. And, and you don't learn unless you apply what you learn. A lesson learned is a lesson collected until you actually change behavior. And so I think what, what allowed us to do that is um, multiple iterations, as you pointed out. But they weren't all rehearsals. Some of them were, what would happen if we changed this condition? So you knew what the task was. You knew what the standard was. Only thing I could change and adjust was the condition. We did things like require uh, units to give up and, uh, you know, you, you, you have to give me uh, five litter cases and ten walking wounded so that the, 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 the surgeon could rehearse. And I do recall we almost had a fist fight because the uh, uh, Alpha Company commander, 5th Battalion, 16th Infantry allowed us how, you know, none of his infantry were going to get killed or wounded. And, I mean, but anyway, it led to a, a confrontation with the battalion surgeon where the battalion surgeon... Offered to take this infantry officer, who's obviously too stupid to operate an M16, and go outside and show them what had to be done. <laughs> but in the end, uh, 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 Greg intervened and, and told the boys to quit fighting, and we were going to do what the surgeon needed done because his people needed to be trained. I also had a combat lifesaver program. I eventually had 58 combat lifesavers in my tank crews, and I'd give up uh, once a month before we ever went, I'd give up both arms and say, combat lifesaver, come over here and start an IV. You come over here and start an IV on the other arm. Uh, a lot of blood got shed, but, you know, guys got to learn how to do it. And uh, the very first time I did that, by the way, the guy that did it passed out. <laughs> he got it done and then passed out cold because he was thinking, I'm hurt. I don't know this guy. He just took command of the battalion, and he wants me to stick a needle in him, you know. Anyway, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. All right.
2: Hey, you did a lot of. All the equipment that you crossed the the berm with, that you executed the passage lines with beforehand, you didn't have all that necessarily. All that kit at home station, right? Didn't have any. Uh, we didn't have
1: any mine rollers or mine plows. We got the mine rollers and mine plows yeah. on the fourteenth of January in Iraq. I put them on, and practice with them that day.
2: Yeah. So that's. I mean, everybody was was doing something for the first time. And the oh sense yeah. Sense of urgency, right? Well, um, we had, had
1: to... we had didn't have GPS. Right. You know, we bought that off the shelf from Magellan. We didn't have, uh, we didn't have the mine plows. We didn't have the rollers. We didn't have all the you know landmines. We had all that crap. It was just there it is. And this is your first time. We'd never seen service sabo. Right. And we got service sabo. And and uh, it, it, you could, the mentality in the army was you had to zero. Well, the M1 tank was built with a fleet zero capability, and I decided to trust it. So what my plan was, you went in there, you, if you were a new tank crew, you got four rounds. And and bear our mind, when we got alerted, I could only man nine tank crews. So I had 12 tank crews, but there were three that weren't manned uh, in, in the uh, tank platoons, not tank crews. I had, I had only enough people to man nine tank platoons, so that meant there were three tank platoons that were unmanned, or you unmanned a crew in every platoon. You know, we did it in a number of different ways. So when we did that, if you fired, your first round went through the center of mass of the target, you fired a check round and moved off the range. The, the new platoons got to fire a, an abbreviated tank gunnery. You know, a, a tank platoon, got, you know, they fired like four or five rounds. But the point was, you didn't have to zero those tanks. The other thing that uh, that was surprising to me is in training a TPDS round could not be seen. You just you couldn't see it. It went so fast. Well, the service sabo round went even faster, but in combat, you could see it just perfectly. You could see it impact on the side of an enemy tank turret bright white, and then it would cool to orange, then the T-72 turret would blow off. But you could see all of that. And I understood why that was. It was a temporal distortion that happens because your body's being pumped full of you know, adrenaline and other hormones that your body creates. And so the problem of seeing a SABO tracer was a non-problem.
2: Yeah, but I get, it gets back to some of the questions that Steve asked and, and some of the points that you've made. Because you had a, a very strong foundation in the different fundamentals, whether they're doctrine or SOPs or uh, trust mutual trust, shared understanding with people on your left right up and down you could deal with all these other variables yeah whereas if you had to uh had a we'll say a a p-minus train organization right uh it would have really been a burden i mean it was enough of a burden to to field all this new kid and, and get accustomed to the battlefield conditions or the type of things that you would use that's a lot easier when you got a highly trained, highly trained outfit than. Uh, and we did. And I'm belaboring the obvious here, but I think for the audience, that's an understanding that if you don't have the strong fundamentals, your ability to,
1: uh, to uh, adapt. Tank crews have to be able to do what tank crews do. Tank platoons have to be able to quickly. And look, the idea that you can't do this quickly is is, uh, is mistaken. If you have the basic underlying principles under. You know, the basic principle. We formed, we, 1-4-Cav formed Alpha Troop, 1-4-Cav, was authorized to create that troop because remember we were a split division. So Alpha Troop was allegedly in Germany. Well, it went away one day and we got the MTO shipped to the United States. That's a, electrons, paper. And Bob Wilson filled a troop, 1-4-Cav. The last soldiers arrived in the middle of January. I'm sorry, the middle of February got there. And Alpha Troop 14 Cav did did just fine because as soon as they got people, they started training. The same thing with us. My, my last uh, cruise arrived after we shipped our tanks. I was getting soldiers as late as Christmas Day. Uh, and we deployed, uh, we flew uh, and arrived New Year's Eve. So those kids went into a tank platoon, there were there was at least there was one uh two tank platoons that did not literally did not exist till we got to the desert. And and they uh, well, the other thing we did is we turned in our M ones and drew M one A ones. Well that's not a big change, but it's enough of a change, especially if you're going to M one M one A one. We called them Mon Paw Kettle heavy metal because they had bolted extra armor or actually uh electrically welded it on so yeah but uh, you can you can be at agility comes from faith in each other and underlying the basic training that you had and then uh, the third part of agility is you got to have the mindset and I think that division first division was blue collar
0: with everything having been said what can our units in the field today do to better plan prepare, and then execute at passage of lines. I'd like to hear from you first, Greg, and then Mr. Creed, if you can follow up.
1: Well, I, I believe that there, we're on the way to that because the National Training Center is back to being a training center as, as opposed to doing a mission rehearsal. That's number one. Number two, you have uh, guys commanding brigades now <clears throat> were junior officers at the very end of the, of the 20th century uh, commission in the late 90s. Sometimes in the early, some of them in the early 2000s. So some of those uh, uh, character traits <clears throat> may have faded. But one of the things I would return to thing is that physical attributes practice. You know, you do the you do the lane training, then you you know you you move your way up. But it sounds a little silly, but I I, I think a three dimensional map board where you actually move around micro armor. I brought that back into Sam's when I was the director there. It had gone away. I don't know if they do it now, but there's, there's no substitute for laying out a heavy brigade on a piece of ground so that you can see what it looks like, and it ought to be done to scale. One of the other things I did when I was running Sam's, this is a long time ago, so there are better ways of doing it, I'm sure, is we would move all these little micro armor gadgets through a refuel-on-the-move operation. <clears throat> so you understood that logistics doesn't happen by accident. For the officers that grew up with a FOB, you know, where Kellogg, Brown and Root, or Halliburton was, was providing three hots and a cot, you know, we need to get back to that. And I think we need to understand that we need to do things that make us miserable, too, like field feeding. One of the reasons that we have uh, bad food in the field was so that we don't have all that logistics tail. Army 86 was designed to take the administrative burden out of the battalions. When you looked at how we echeloned in World War II, the field army had administrative and operational requirements. And in those days, we resupplied everybody with supply point distribution. So you had a big infrastructure at the field army level. Corps had none. Corps had no logistics and administrative responsibilities. Divisions did. Well, we've changed that now. We have corps have logistics responsibilities. We're going to have corps support groups or expeditionary support formate, whatever you want to call them. You have to figure out what you want your echelons to do and then what you want your formations to look like. And I think once we've settled all that, as the Army goes through this reorganization it's doing now from our brigade-based Army to the division as a unit of action, we'll have to relearn how to do some of that.
2: Yeah, I I think those are very good points. And the only thing I think I would add uh, is a focus on bottom-up fundamental basic principles right the first thing is there's no maneuver without movement there's no enabling operation without movement there's certainly no passage of lines without movement and if you don't have the movements right the whole thing no matter how well planned if you can't execute you got a problem um and that's a bottom up so it starts with well-trained crews uh where you know drivers know where to go uh without the the vehicle commander saying you know left right left right left right if they've got to talk on two nets and so forth, and then you get the platoons. Uh, companies can't move, the platoons can't move, uh, battalions can't move, if platoons and companies can't move, and so forth, and so on all the way up. And so we've got to get, we've got to trust and we've got to enable our, uh, our junior company grades to get the time in the turrets, behind the wheels, uh, in whatever platforms that, that they're using. And if they're a, a dismounted formation, it's no different, it's the reps. To, to be able to do those kinds of things uh, under the conditions unique to that formation. I think we probably need to suggest if they don't already exist, uh, things like GTA cards that we used to have. Um, you know, it was part and parcel to every, at least in the organizations I was in through Ready First Combat Team that you had a leader book that had checklists for certain kinds of operations. Our passage lines was one of those that you had the checklist, just to remind yourself when you're tired, even if you had to memorize, hey, did I, you know, have I planned for the contact points? Have I, you know, Do I know what the nets are that I'm switching back and forth uh, between?
1: I actually put our checklist in, uh, in the battalion, because uh, I could, in the aviation checklist books. Right, yeah. Yeah, and we had them in the brigade too, but uh, there's nothing like a checklist. There's a reason pilots use checklists.
2: Right. Well, you know, we had, we would take the... Uh, the knee boards, we would buy them in clothing sales that the aviators would take, and we would put them uh, on our legs with those checklists, uh, because a lot of times you're sitting in a hatch and you can just flip this thing over, or you could pop down, open it up, and then pop back up, right? Um, And then you, you, you talked about it, but the sand table piece, there's something about the way you learn as opposed to watch. When you actually have to physically move things around by hand uh, and you're looking at things and you're, you're arguing about them or, or discussing them professionally or both, right? Uh, the physical activity of moving those things somehow impresses in your mind, I think, at least for me, the idea that there is a time component to this. And the understanding of time and space is not something that's easily captured in simulation. Uh, it's something that you need reps in the real physical world to do. Uh, and, and so things like a passage of lines, uh, a wet gap crossing, any of these types
0: of operations,
2: uh, I think you got to have those things.
0: Well, gentlemen, are there any saved rounds? Is there anything either of you would like to add before we conclude today? No.
2: Well, you know what? There's one, and it gets to some other things, right? Executing a task at a collective level, no matter what echelon you're talking about, assumes a bunch of things it assumes that you do maintenance right that, that your vehicles work that your people can execute and i think there's a tendency sometimes we pick on a thing like the wet gap crossing in a warfighter or something and so that's the big thing we're looking at um, and this isn't denigrating anybody's uh, you know understanding of how this stuff works i think everybody gets it but you got to give the bits and pieces of that larger formation time and space to be able to practice the things that they have to do so that you can do the big thing. Um, And I just, sometimes I don't know whether we have um, that understanding that General Franks had that, hey, I've never seen a mine plow before. How long does it, you know, what speed does a tank move with a mine plow? It's not 25 kilometers an hour that I'm expecting you to be able to move, right? And so their planning is actually influenced by their knowledge of those little details. And so I think that the details matter.
0: That's a good point, sir. And with that, I think we'll wrap up today's show. Uh, Thank you both for joining me today. I'd like to thank our listeners and note that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Captain Stephen McCurry, and this has been Breaking Doctrine.